0: Welcome to the Journal of Southwest Radio Hour. I'm Jeff Bannister. I'm talking today with Dr. Emma Perez, a research social scientist in the Southwest Center and professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Arizona. Dr. Perez has a Ph.D. in history from UCLA and taught in the Department of History at the University of Texas, El Paso, from 1990 to 2003, where she was also chair. From 2003 to 2017, she taught in the Department of Ethnic Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she served as chair as well and developed the department's Ph.D. program in Comparative Ethnic Studies. Perez has published several essays and is author of the book The Decolonial Imaginary, Writing Chicanas into History, which has been cited in several disciplines. She has written works of fiction, including her first book, Gulf Dreams, considered to be one of the first Chicana lesbian novels in print. Her second novel, Forgetting the Alamo, or Blood Memory, was published in 2009 and won the National Association for Chicana-Chicano Studies Regional Book Award for Fiction in 2011. Dr. Perez continues to research and write on LGBT, Chicanx, and Mexicanx topics in the borderlands with her latest two projects. Dr. Perez, welcome to the Journal of Southwest Radio Hour. Thank you.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: So uh, I thought maybe we could start off by talking a little bit about... um, your trajectory as a scholar, as an academic, um, most people don't just end up in academia or end up... I mean, I should say most people don't know early on that they no. want to be an academic. So no. how did you How did you get here?
1: I had no clue about, that there was even such a thing because I grew up in a small town in Texas that had been initially formed as a migrant camp in the 1890s, I believe. And that's why it was called El Campo, which is basically the camp, right? Um, and my father had a 7th grade education, my mother a 3rd grade education. It was an incredibly racist, sexist, homophobic town. All the things you could possibly imagine when there's 9,000 people, right? Um, And um, yeah, I think that there's some, my parents just, my father was very pro-education. He was, I I really believe that if he'd had a chance to have had a formal education, he would have been, he would have really been stellar, but he, he had a seventh grade education. He was self trained in upholstery. He went to work for NASA because we moved to Pasadena where, when NASA moved to Houston, and he began to work for them. and And the engineers would go to my dad because he was so good at visualizing. I mean, stuff he he sent stuff into space, right? I mean, he was making astronaut suits and things that hmm. that. They were using. So he was a he was pretty brilliant, and my he's he passed away about, uh, over twenty years ago. My mom, uh, third grade education, very hard worker. Parents, you know, they they worked the cotton fields, would travel, working the cotton fields, and then finally settled in that small town. And she was a very hard worker too. So there's something about you know my dad had the they had four you know three five kids, four of us are girls and one boy. And my dad was very very adamant about the importance of education and he pushed that on us he knew that he he was a world war ii hero and he read avidly and so you know my first sister got her b.a the second got her m.a and then i ended up with my phd it was just the way that that we i don't know i mean it was just in kind of in that order And I think that I got interested in wanting to pursue a PhD in history when I moved to California when I was 18. I also moved to California to come out as queer because Texas was not a happy place in the 70s. And California was the Mecca, right? Mm -hmm. It was really the Mecca for if you were queer, L.A. and the Bay Area, both. The big cities, you know, the big cities, um, Chicago, New York, L.A., And so I ended up there and didn't know what the heck I was doing. So I went to junior colleges and moved my way up and ended up at UCLA. And I thought I was going to go to law school because that just seemed like the practical thing to do, right? To get a professional degree. No one ever said to me, oh, you should get a PhD. And I think because I'd been studying women's history with some pretty good women's historians and as well as Chicano, Chicana history with a really superb Chicano historian who I still have tremendous respect for, my mentor named Juan Gomez Quiñones. We just had his retirement celebration two Januaries ago. Yeah. And they really influenced me, and I started to really love history and the archive and historiography of all things. Mm -hmm. I mean, who loves historiography? (laughs) My sister would make fun of me, my little sister, because she thought, who says that? I'm an historian. It's like, I know, nobody <laughs> in my family says it, <laughs> but I loved, I don't know, there were, I think one of the things that happened is that, um, and I've said this before in different venues, is when I was doing women's history and Chicana history, there, was, there, were, no, there, was, there were no studies, really, not uh, of, of Chicanas, and there were no Chicana historians except for two who had a PhD at the time.
0: Who were also in California?
1: Who were in California. One was in Chicago, but she'd gotten her PhD in California. Mm-hmm. And the other one was also in California. Uh, Latin American studies was usually the area they would go into. There was someone else who who, who was in Latin American. But, um, but you know, the way that they're split up, there's the borders... Unfortunately, I mean, that's sort of what I try to do in Decolonial Imaginary is like break open those borders and say Chicano history doesn't just start in 1848, right? Mm-hmm, right. So um, <clears throat> so I think what happened in grad school is that when I was taking women's history classes there was, and Chicano history classes, there was a big gap. And I saw the gap. And it really frustrated me because there was an article I came across in the 1920s called The Mexican Peon Women of Texas that was... Written by a sociologist and basically saying, "Oh, you know, the Mexican women are very passive and they follow the men in migrant these migrant trails." And and I thought about that, and I thought about my mom and my grandmother and my theas, and I thought there's, they're really missing, the the subtlety of of the fierceness of these Mexican women, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and the kind of dynamic with with their husbands and and um, and the men in their lives. Um, so I just saw a major gap and it made me angry. So I think, I think out of social commitment and conviction, I decided it was important to become an historian. Mm-hmm. And Juan was very encouraging. And someone the, the women's historians too, like my other mentor, Kitty Sklar, was also very encouraging. And that's how I ended up with a PhD in history. I mean, I, I really loved political theory. I was more of a I loved uh, philosophy and theory, but um, but there was a big gap in history. So that's why I did it. I mean, I also loved literature, but mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd do well in a lit department.
0: Well, it's interesting that, you know, you're talking about a gap. It does, you know, just reading some of your work, I can, I can see the way that you've uh, attempted to fill that in a very theoretically informed way. Mm-hmm. And it, at the same time, it's almost like, um, to me, it's, not to put put words in your mouth here but i can see the gap but i can almost i can also see how Um, it would be frustrating to see that kind of projection that was happening in historiography, you know Mm -hmm, what I mean? Even mm -hmm. more than a gap, like a really strong projection (laughs) coming from those historians. Exactly. Exactly. Herbert Eugene Bolton talking about the Spanish Spanish borderlands.
1: Yes, thank you, Bolton, the Bolton School, yeah. And that's a powerful school. It's a very powerful school, that history. And I love studying that historiography. I wish I could get more... Students interested in that again but i think what's curious is yesterday i gave my students a um, an oral final and i said pick one of the readings from this semester and you will have to deconstruct it and give us a presentation on it yeah, in your project. own words mm-hmm. and they did really well and so many of them picked uh, my good friend in fact antonia castaneda i don't know if you know of her work she's a chicana historian in 1982, when I was in graduate school, Juan Gomez Quinones and Adelaida Del Castillo, who were in partnership at the time, um, held organized one of the first Chicana history conferences ever. Right, and everybody who and anybody who was doing stuff on Chicana history was there. And that's when I met Dina Gonzalez, who was at Berkeley studying, you know, the Spanish borderland school, right? Because that was at Berkeley, Bolton, Mm -hmm. Bancroft, Mm -hmm. originally Bancroft in the 1840s, and then Bolton with the Spanish borderland school. Antonia was at Stanford, uh, and she was definitely studying the 18th century, uh, Dina was studying the 19th century and I was late 19th, early 20th and we were all in grad school and the three of us became inseparable and we're still super close friends 35 years later, right. But Antonia wrote articles about the 18th century and she has a really good article about gender and the Spanish and the Spanish borderline school and the manner in which, women were perceived so it's yeah the frustration of that and mm-hmm. that was the historiography of the time right mm-hmm. whether you're doing that or you were getting into labor history of the 30s mm-hmm. and 40s once again the erasure mm-hmm. right there's such such erasure and then the 19th century as well which is why I enjoy the ni- studying the 19th century because again people say oh I mean you know this the bloodless conquest right which is kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. why I love Cormac McCarthy's blood meridian yeah. right because that that was not a bloodless conquest. He I mean, destroys was, that notion. I know, he really does. I mean, it may be fiction, but it's not. Right. Mm-hmm, right. Well, yeah. I
0: th- it's an interesting... I, I can hear, you know, in the way that you're talking about this, and I really hadn't thought about this, reading your work until just now, but the, your, your kind of so-called generation or your generation mm-hmm. was a rupture, a really important kind of rupture with that mm-hmm. long, um, mm-hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. 19th century tradition of history and historiography of the so-called Spanish borderlands. That was a really important moment.
1: It was. I think it was. Chicano, well, Chicano history started that, right? right. I mean, I think Juan Mm -hmm. Gomez Quinones was instrumental um, also the guy, uh, the, the initial George Sanchez, not the one who's at USC, who's does good work. I'm not, you know, he's a social historian who's contemporary, went to Stanford and worked with Al Camarillo, who also worked with, I mean, you can do the genealogies, who had worked with Juan, but the George Sanchez, who was publishing in the fifties. And I think what's interesting about him is how you see the subtle ways in which he's, he's articulating, um, the way that and this is the 50s the McCarthy period right so the way in which people were being resistant was very quiet right in mm-hmm. order to survive
0: right you had to kind of areas. be underground you had
1: to be right. underground and he was a professional i i forget where he was but it was that kind of thing that doesn't get disrupted till the 60s mm-hmm. and then it's like we're just gonna resist it's not and, and this is what we're going to do, but the Chicanas came along. The Chicana historians and, and Chicana stu- sociologists, literary critics, um, a few political scientists, anthropologists—they come—they came along in in the '80s to disrupt what the Chicano studies programs had been doing, and that they were incredibly machista. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing—they—they they weren't. I mean, for them, gender was. back seat right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like let's just have the revolution and then we'll tend to gender right it's like seriously let's look at the Mexican Revolution let's look at the Russian Revolution these are the mistakes and I think that's why I got interested in studying the Mexican Revolution too Mm -hmm. because of the manner in which those that same kind of ideology happens again and again I mean I looked at the Partido Liberal Mexicano the anarchist who I love studying Mm -hmm. and you saw it there I mean when they talked about gender what were they saying in the 1970s 1910, Mm -hmm. when they write a la mujer. It's like, you have a right to this, you're a worker too. It's like, yeah, but there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of my... The way Dina and Antonia and I would discuss it, because the three of us were inseparable, and all grad students, is that Antonia inevitably would talk about class. And Antonia came from a migrant family who had left Crystal City and ended up in... in, um, in Washington the state of Washington and literally lived in in labor camps right and so for her class was fundamental we've got to discuss the issues of class and how that that they're distinguishing you know things that, that happen in our community certainly in the 18th century too with the the California elite right versus the peasants and then Dina who was from New Mexico uh, northern, does her work on, in Santa Fe, and her work inevitably would focus more on race. Mm-hmm. This isn't that to say sense, we yeah. weren't doing race, gender, <clears throat> race, gender. We were all doing race, class, gender, sexuality. Yeah, but it's the way in which we would each have a different focus. And for me, it was always gender and sexuality, coupled with race and, and, mm-hmm. and class. Like you can't. So that's how we learned from each other mm-hmm. as well. The importance of 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 never forgetting. Mm-hmm. you know that it's that, that there's so many so many elements here that we need to consider continue to consider when we're doing our academic work and community work as well right,
0: right. I mean it's so interesting how the um, yeah, I can really hear what, in what you're saying the way that the, your rootedness in place, mm-hmm. or place is, really yeah, because places. yours is a story of movement, like yeah. so many people's, mm-hmm. uh, and your parents before you. But just yeah. how that um, yeah. place experience so informs mm-hmm. what you end up focusing on um, yeah. as, exactly. a, as a scholar. As you know, there's no I know. real distinction to be tra- drawn between your life there's and your not. academic life, or in a way, there's right? not.
1: And, I mean, don't you think it's all it's all biography? Even if it's academic work, I mean, people don't think it is, and not, you know how how well you're in geography, and I'm sure you're trained to be. We don't put the first person in, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Our yeah. first person right. experience. We don't. I was in in Germany last summer giving a conference at a conference. I, I had the I had the um, privilege of being one of the keynote scholars, and I heard some wonderful papers, and one was from a. a yeah, I was really nerding out because she was from, from Paris, and she had worked on the Foucault, um, and I love Foucault, I think it's obvious that I love Foucault, mm-hmm. um, some of the dead white men, I just, but he's kind of my boyfriend, I love Foucault, mm-hmm. but he, um, she was working on his archive, and you know, this is, these are like thousands and thousands of papers, right, she never had a chance to meet him, but she's close friends with Daniel Who's his? Um, who was his lifetime partner mm-hmm. for like twenty years? Mm-hmm. And I got really, I just kept asking her questions, and she gave a really good good paper. But one of the things that I'm doing in my latest work and the will to feel is the importance of of uh, first person experience, mm-hmm. right? Which is nothing new. People have been discussing this for a long time. But I I do that especially in my classes because I want students to find their voice when they even when they do academic work, they get so distant from it. And one of the things I encourage them to do is once they can relate their own personal experience to the theory, to the documents, then then they get a little more invested in it. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of doing that in my new work on the will to feel. And she, when we talked later at dinner, she said, you know, in Europe, we just don't. In France, we are not able to do that at all, to do the first person experience. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to hear it. And if you're doing that then it's not taken seriously. And I think we know that about this country too, but it's mm-hmm. there have been interventions. Yeah, it's opening up. Yeah. I can it's, feel been, that. Yep. it's definitely been opening up. Mm-hmm. I mean I think geography from the from from the um geographers that I've spoken to, certainly cultural anthropologists, mm-hmm. right, sociologists too. And in history it's taking a little bit more. Mm-hmm. It's still the objective science, right?
0: Right, right. But it's not. Well, and I think that I I totally agree with that. I mean, I I see that happening in in certainly geography and anthropology, probably to some degree as well as sociology, that we're, um, you know, we're more authorized to to speak Mm -hmm. from our own positionality. In fact, not even just authorized, we're we're being asked more and more to do that. Absolutely. You know, and, and we can't, it's not we can't go on pretending that this is an emotionless, kind of bloodless exactly. affair any longer. It just, you know. I know. Um, but, in, but in history, I can see how it's a little more stubborn to this, mm-hmm. or resistant, because we're, we're drawing from archival sources that exactly. are, you know, it, the archive interpolates yeah. us in a way. Yeah, it
1: does interpolate <laughs> you know? us, absolutely. But the, the issue I have is when people say, well, the facts speak for themselves. Yeah,
0: right. And I'm like, History you're, speaks, you're <laughs> history will judge
1: you're interpreting i mean look at bolton look at bankrupt they were interpreting these documents That's right. mm-hmm. and if you read antonia's article on her chapter her yeah her article on on gender i mean you see okay this is the very same document that Bolton looked at or Bancroft looked at. Now, let's see how gender was absolutely erased or what they were saying about the Spanish-Mexican soldiers, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That they're lazy and they were the ones who were going to bring down the race and, you know, the Mm -hmm. usual kind of... The usual racist... Yeah, the uh, usual style that you hear in the 19th century, too, and that, you know, that you hear in the 21st century, too. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, how have you... um, This is something that I've definitely seen in your work. You've... How have you negotiated this, uh, the, the gaps that you see in the archival um, material, the lack of particular voices and nuances and subtlety? How do you negotiate that in oh, your God. research? It's its tough,
1: huh? I write fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like a cop-out, but, you know, the reason I wrote Forgetting the Alamo or Blood Memory, which is kind of a, uh, um, it's a kind of a uh, interpolating Cormac McCarthy's work, right? Blood Meridian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like people to catch that. Not everybody mm-hmm. does because mm-hmm. so many people are not McCarthy fans. Mm-hmm. But Right. Yeah, there seems to be two camps around him, yeah. right? You just love him or you hate him. Or you hate him, <laughs> right. yeah. But I kind of... I used to stalk him in, in El Paso until mm-hmm. I finally met him. Yeah. But he was so shy, super shy. So I didn't really meet him. Mm-hmm. I just said hi. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think that... Um, God, what was the question? I, got oh, on Car- uh, well, I was just thinking about Carmick McCarthy.
0: How you negotiate the, the frustrations yeah, yeah, yeah. of the gaps. Yeah, well, yeah. the way
1: I negotiated it is by writing a writing a, a novel, because I wanted to find more in the archive for the 19th century. And I just got so frustrated, because I'd go to the... I love the Bancroft Library. I mean, it was one of my best experiences when I lived in uh, Northern California, and I was getting to teach Vicki DeRice's classes and in at UC Davis and I was getting to live with Antonia Castañeda she was writing her diss I was writing mine and um I just would get frustrated that I couldn't find what I wanted and I guess really I was being a romantic I wanted to find love letters between women <laughs> and between not just elite women but everyday women <laughs> you know the 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 commoners and it, it, they weren't there so I started an epistolary novel um, that was set in the 19th century Texas and so um, but it didn't work so then I you know these things you sort of teach yourself that didn't work so then I moved on and, and while I was doing that I was doing a considerable amount of research in um, in Texas in Texas I mean of course going to the Benson but then just space geography right I mean going to spaces and sensing sensing what's there and, um, you mean visiting
0: the places that appear yeah. in your mm-hmm. or that you're interested in your work? Oh, that's yeah. really that's neat. Huh? Yeah, I had uh-huh. to
1: visit the places, and and then, I mean, of course, I grew up around the San Jacinto Monument. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, they would give us day trips to go to the San Jacinto Monument, and I always thought it was a strange place. And, and then when I got older, I would go to this place. I would go to the very spot where they captured Santa Ana. I never knew why I was doing it. I mm. just would. I was in high school, I think. But still, thinking back, I mean, spaces. I did it in New Mexico, too, even though... Because I would I would go to New Mexico a lot back then. And it was just about imagining what people were living in, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the kinds of... And it was a different way of... And there are people who have written about the. I mean, certainly, and geographers have written a lot about mm-hmm. this. And the manner in which we have to be... Res- I mean, I don't know. I mean, the vibratory sort of things that you get from land and from spaces, and and what gets carved out of that after generations, and you don't, you get that in the archive too, definitely. Mm-hmm. But but the papers aren't necessarily going to give you that. So that's why I turn mm-hmm. to fiction.
0: It's kind of disembodied. The, yeah. The, the the archival experience to me feels very. Uh you know, you're very abstracted yes. from place. so You're trying to kind of resuscitate um, a place yeah. from this material, exactly. which is fun. Yeah, or you know, and important, but yeah.
1: it's hard sometimes. To, yeah, it's been you know, amputated. You right? know, from that space, and so it's like that's why I went to Yucatan to do the, you know, to look at the archives in Yucatan when I was doing the chapters on, well, when I was working on my diss mm-hmm. and because it was all Yucatecan feminism, right? And being in that space teaches you a lot about what how people are relating to each other, right? And just being in the archive, too. What do you mean
0: by Yucatecan feminism? I don't know, but is this a... Um,
1: this was one of the... the my dissertation was on, on, of all things, on Yucatan um, and the socialist kind of revolution there from 1910 to 1918. Oh, I'm when, sorry, I didn't know that. I yeah, that's I, okay, because uh, I I, yeah. only one of the chapters in Decolonial Imaginary um, is I about that. that huh? Yeah, I did not publish my... I did the dissertation because when I was in in grad school in history, they wanted to stop me at my master's because my my um, uh, the papers I had written were too theoretical in their minds, mm-hmm. and they I didn't do enough with the archive, and they didn't think I really knew how to deconstruct an archive, hmm. and so I said, well, why don't I just go to Mexico where there is thousands upon thousands of documents. So I did. I what said, a bullshit
0: technicality I too, know. to yeah. level I know. charge to level at a grad student.
1: Well yeah. and Juan Gómez Quinones had my back then. That's is why I love him so much, because he just he wrote like this six page single spaced letter to the to the department and he was in the department saying why they were being incredibly racist and elitist and they didn't understand Chicana and Chicano history. Mm-hmm. So, but I thought, okay, fine. They passed me. I so then they passed me along for the masters, and then um, and that's when I was doing that theoretical piece on on the Partido Liberal Mexicano, right? So I went to Yucatan to to study the Yucatecan feminists because there was a feminist congress in nineteen uh, sixteen in that Salvador Alvarado when he became president of um, he became governor rather of um of Yucatan in the midst of the revolution, right? And he um he really did have more of a vision about socialism in Yucatan. I got interested in Yucatan because of the feminism and it was this was a moment, you know, we were all studying feminism in the in the eighties and I um I won I was interested in Chicana feminism, but people were saying to me, Why are you going to Yucatan? Because none of these Chicanas went to the Yucatan Feminist Congress. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they didn't because there were no Chicanas at the time. (laughs) But we had Mexicanas who um, helped instigate this conference in in 1916. And so I, I found the way it started is that I found some documents at the Bancroft Library. Ermila Galindo was one of the one of the feminists who presented and she was from Mexico City, but she was invited by Governor Salvador Alvarado to come and, and do a a paper there. She didn't go but she did send her paper. And this was very similar to what was happening in the United States. So in, in a sense, I was doing a comparative with some of the things I'd learned in women's history, right? Um, and the way in which the Congresses um, were occurring in, in the US and the things they were, they were battling for because birth control was prominent at the time. Women getting the vote was very important. I mean, these were two of the main issues for women in, um, in the US, in England, of course we know. And then in Yucatan too. And the other thing mm-hmm. that I found really fascinating, and even more so now because I have a friend who stu- who recently went to the archive to look at um, some of the prostitutes for the nineteenth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and look at prost- the photographs. But um, uh, police police
0: photographs. Yes, right. the ah. police photographs,
1: but also uh, the con- the importance of the Contagious Disease Acts, right? Mm-hmm. And the and that those the way the women. Um, in Yucatan, specifically, I found some documents to show um, the papers they had to carry with them because of the Contagious Disease Acts. Mm. Um, so all of that was really... And it's the policing. I mean, this is mm-hmm. before I was really studying very much of Foucault. Mm-hmm. I didn't really do that till after I got my PhD, because once they slapped me, slapped my hand and said, no, no more theory if you're going to get a PhD in history, then I sort of put it aside and thought, okay, let me just focus on the archive for now, and I will do a narrative... I will let the I will let the documents speak for themselves, and so that was the disc. That's why I never wanted to publish it, and that's why it took so long to get the decolonial imaginary out there because I was feeling very defiant and thinking mm-hmm. I'm still going to do theory, mm-hmm. and that's when I got immersed in Foucault on my own when I was doing um, different postdocs. Well, thankfully you did. I well, that know. That seems so um,
0: obviously clearly. Related to you, or informative of your your research. I think so. Research.
1: I think I think so. And it, yeah, his work just helped me tremendously. Still does. I mean, now I'm working on biopolitics and how that is because of lynching and mob violence, you mm-hmm. know. And, and clearly, I mean, people will always say this, well, Foucault didn't write about race. It's like, no, he didn't deliberately write about race. But if you look at some of those early lectures, he is talking about race in his own way, but that's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is, how does this framework help us exactly. as we're talking about, you know, biopolitics? And, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, yeah, that's how I got interested in Yucatan. So the whole, the whole dissertation became different chapters about... Um, Y- yucatecan life yeah for the 19 from about 1900 or 1910 to 1918 yeah mm-hmm. that time frame and then I just put it aside and um
0: but you seem like you're so in your book um the decolonial imaginary uh, yeah. writing chicanos in, into history so yeah clearly you brought something of that experience back yeah. I mean like you, yeah you, know, you said you didn't chapter for chapter publish that work but one of the chapters. Um, one of the chapters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the um, mm-hmm. the the idea of a colonial? Um,
1: yeah, the decolonial or, or imaginary. decolonial
0: imaginary, and also like just the idea of decolonizing methods in yeah. historiography. And-
1: Thank you. Decolon. It is about decolonizing methods and in historiography, and that was sort of my intent. I think the way I came to that is that I took a. Um, I, have you heard of the, the theory boot camp that happens in the East Coast? I think it's still going on. Dark, it was at Dartmouth that summer, the School mm-hmm. of Criticism and Theory.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I think and, I actually heard about it through a podcast of yours that I listened to. Did oh, you talk okay. about it there? Yes, did I did. Yeah. I did, yeah. And that's mm-hmm. when I, wor- I had a chance to work with, with Homi Baba, yeah, who was the post-colonialist. And I think it's because I was reading so much post-colonial theory in his seminar, and I, I just learned so much. And I thought, well... Postcolonial, colonial the way he explained it is historically specific to British relationship to India, right, or African relationship to the, you know, to different parts of Europe. And um, that wasn't the same thing for Chicanos in the Southwest or in the U.S. and our relationship to Mexico, to Spain, to, to um, Anglo-America, right, in the 19th century. And so post-colonial wasn't going to work. And I just knew it wasn't going to work because there was no post here. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why. I, I, so I started looking at something that I call the de- the colonial imaginary. And um, because I still thought that there are colonial relations here. But it but, because it's not material, because we can't say, oh, look, this is happening in that Marxist social relation sort of way, there's something else that, that's occurring For people, and we people never want to talk about as much because it's easier to do the material. And I think I'm getting I I see some of the criticism that's coming at me now about the imaginary, and that that is false. But I still hold on to it and think, okay, where does this where do these ideas come from?
0: Right, false in the sense of like a
1: um... it's not materialist, right? I mean, these are hardcore materialist, right? right. Mm -hmm. And I just think you can't be materialist and not think about ideology mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. think about I mean what Althusser, right but it, mm-hmm. I'm really not much of an Althusserian. but really I mean it's more Lacanian, the imaginary how do things
0: mm-hmm.
1: come to be right? What mm-hmm. comes first? So for me, um, I think the way I got involved in, in the in making it decolonial is is moving this step beyond colonial. And saying, well, there's something else that we're doing in this process, and we're between the colonial and the postcolonial. So I really think we're like in that moment historically, where we're all kind of deconstructing. Because I think of decolonial really as a deconstructive tool, mm-hmm. right? And if we choose to use it as a deconstructive tool, then yes, it's a method. How do we do? How do we do that? Mm-hmm. As a method, and that's how it is. That's how the imaginary kind of comes into play because we use it methodologically, as opposed to thinking, oh, these are specific historical moments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of the way I came to it. But I know having studied with, with Homi Baba helped a lot, studying with Teresa de Loretty said it, it uh, well, actually, she was my colleague. But, uh, you know, I certainly saw her as a mentor when I was, stud- when I was teaching at, center, at, at uh, History of Consciousness and had access to people like Hayden White and Donna Haraway and, and Teresa and I learned a lot and Angela Davis who was right next door to me uh, which is pretty phenomenal but I had a, an opportunity to to kind of make some sense of what, what that meant for me and I was reading a lot of again reading a lot of Foucault and reading some of the postcolonial theorists Gayatrice Bivak was also very important at the mm-hmm. time too and she called herself a decolonialist really mm-hmm. um, in her own way but there are problems now with it and I think that's why in the will to feel I'm going to try to to pull that apart a little bit more because so much is about let's decolonize this let's decolonize that and mm-hmm. what does that really mean for people
0: yeah it's a, that's a good point yeah. I feel like that term yeah, yeah. Uh, is very yeah. Uh, hip right now
1: it's very um, hip and mm-hmm. it's so funny because when I was doing it back in the 90s nobody was decolonizing anything Mm -hmm. and I published Decolonial Imaginary in 1999 and and I'm not sure how much Walter Mignolo had done yet I mean really it was I was learning from Spivak and then Fanon a little bit Um, but I guess then it just kind of took off and people just started I mean Mm -hmm. Mignolo was one of the ones especially Mm -hmm. was writing a lot about it and I I like his work Mm -hmm. I do like his work I think but um but i think one of the problems i find in some of the decolonialist now many of whom are latin americanist is that um there's a kind of there's a kind of um and this is where indigenous scholars i think have an issue too is that there is a kind of romanticizing of, of indigeneity yeah and that's problematic that's cool. yeah i mean you know with your own research it's problematic to say oh well then these But it's never, I mean, and Spivak says this too, it's never about about reverting back to something.
0: Yeah, right.
1: I mean, and yes, indigeneity, I mean, if we talk about the Aztecas, they themselves were colonizers, right? Mm -hmm. So then what does that mean if we're going to decolonize? And it isn't just looking to Europe as the colonizers and just saying, oh, look, the Indian tribes were, were just all... Harmonious, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the mistake I think some people make. It's like let's idealize this and make it harmonious when, mm-hmm. in fact, that's not that's not the point. And and this is why historical specificity is so important, right? Mm-hmm. And and specific studies are so important, to, regardless of whether they're, his, they're historical. But um, well, it's so um,
0: <laughs> it's so tempting in this moment, and I see it all around me, and I'm guilty of it myself. Mm-hmm. To, um, to to um, invoke mm-hmm. um, an indigenous past that yeah. is going to give us some answers to our current yeah. predicament. I know, and I think that uh, yeah. uh, there are some definite injustices, obviously injustices yeah. and racism about yeah. that. Um, and yet it's a fine line because yeah. there is there are knowledges and yes. ways of being that somehow yeah. you know that that I know there's a I know it's a funny thing you can't simply just make a, an assumption about closeness to place yeah. amongst indigenous peoples especially in this current in, in our in our moment mm-hmm. in our contemporary moment yeah. because that's just to to say well other people are not contemporary with ourselves somehow, yeah. right yeah. That, yeah. that they're not in this so-called modern moment yeah and yet um yeah and yet you know there's got to be some way that we can also honor exactly those
1: knowledges and what's come before. exactly and, and how that's we, so tricky and that's so tricky i mean it's what we're sort of all learning, I think that's why there's so many clashes right now. There's a big clash with the old school Chicano nationalist, but then the Chicano feminist are being attacked too for being much too for appropriating indigeneity. Right? Mm-hmm. right. Right. And I think that and while there may be some truths to that, I think people aren't looking at the complexities because again it's like okay are you really looking at the studies and what people have been yeah, trying to say right. That's right. with some of this stuff because i know when antonia was writing about you know amerindian women she was definitely attempting to give not to give voice but rather to to look in the archive and to say look we have these indigenous tribal groups and this is the way this is the way these women were treated by by some of these colonizers or the spanish mexican soldiers right mm-hmm. so it's not as if it's been erased it's been there but we also need indigenous scholars in the different tribal histories right right Mm -hmm. i mean that's really what we need to push on and just get get more of those studies done but yeah i mean there's it's kind of easy to idealize and say oh yeah you know the past but it's not, you know, how what part of the past do we remain? Yeah, there is no right? the past. Yeah, that's
0: the it's so true. And but you hear it in popular discourse yeah. all the time. Nostalgia. And political yeah. circles, exactly. Say, well, history will judge this way, and yeah, you know. And I actually talk to my students a lot about that, yeah. and I say, well, you know, it's or I try to bring that in that there is no mm-hmm. historical actor <laughs> that's mm-hmm. got the god's eye perspective mm-hmm. that can judge exactly. and say, you know, history is meted out in absolute events. And